0: You are listening to Ukraine242. We bring
1: you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts and key people on the ground telling the story of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, filling in temporarily for your host, Anne Levine. On November 30th, the Iowa State University Lecture Series in Ames, Iowa, presented a lecture called Russia, Ukraine, and the United States, Monsters and Myths. The presenter was Scott Feinstein, an assistant professor of political science who researches war and ethnic groups and their cultural bonds spent over three years taking interviews and digging through archives in Russia, Moldova, and Ukraine. He has also studied identity politics in the U.S. and issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. He currently studies and assists Ukrainians displaced by war. We bring you here a shortened version of Professor Feinstein's speech. He makes a case for democracy and diversity, by exploring issues of power for nation states and security concerns in the world theater. By looking at these issues, he tries to explain what mistakes the Russian government made and how these have led to errors in judgment that have led to the invasion of Ukraine. At the end, Feinstein also stops to speculate a bit on how such an error will affect international relations in the world at large. Here is Scott Feinstein.
0: I got involved and interested in Russian politics and violence in Eurasia when I joined the Peace Corps in the Republic of Moldova in Eastern Europe. Moldova is one of the former 15 republics of uh, this former Soviet Union, and when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, there were 15 new states that had emerged. You know, we have Ukraine, Russia, the Baltic countries, Belarus, the Caucasus, and Stans in Central Asia, and Moldova is one of these new independent states. Now, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and becomes independent, a civil war broke out in Moldova with Transnistria. And Transnistria essentially wanted to be its own independent state as well, sort of to be a 16th successor state to the Soviet Union. And when I arrived in Moldova about 10 years after the armistice had begun, it was sort of the lowest point since the Civil War itself. And I wondered, why did they go to the war? And so I went back to school to study this and study political science and violence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In Moldova, we have Russia with Chechnya and Azerbaijan and then in Georgia. And particularly, why have we seen this Russian invasion and in this large-scale war in Ukraine? decades after there was quite peaceful relations after the Soviet Union collapsed but then we've seen recently this incredible invasion with very credible reports of mass killings and genocidal acts perpetrated by the Russian government we've seen blowing up of civilian infrastructure and a great amount of tragedy so what has happened here Is is this about NATO? This is a big alliance that is designed to sort of stop and face the Soviet Union, and it's increasingly pushed further and further east closer to Russia and threaten their security. I think there's a lot of truth to this. Vladimir Putin has spoken very directly about his worries about NATO and the threat that it brings to Russia itself. It's been very different from its first initial states that joined NATO under the Yeltsin years where there were negotiations and Yeltsin had agreed to this and then Russian involvement in these negotiations kind of disappeared. I think Vladimir Putin's personal ambition is also probably a very important aspect. This is somebody who has stated his worries that the Soviet Union's loss was a great tragedy, telling the world that you know, the world would be better if there were three powerful states in the world, with the United States, Russia, and China dominating power. And you know there are certain aspects that we might even see in Russian society and their desire to go to war. When the Soviet Union collapsed, and just before it, Most Russians thought that uh, their homeland was the borders of the Soviet Union. They didn't feel that the Russian Federation that they were a part of necessarily was what they wanted. We often think Vladimir Putin is the sole actor and the only person interested in war. But in fact, there is this very large Novorossiya movement that has pushed and very much wanted war and maybe not even for the same reasons as Vladimir Putin. So I think all of these explanations are somewhat important to understanding what's going on here. And what I'm going to focus on and hopefully bridge a few of these together is thinking about this international system, what I kind of call a monster, the relationship between states and the uncertainty that can arise up from this, and two different myths, power and a Slavic brotherhood. And so I'm first going to speak about this international system, these monsters, these unknown monsters that might be lurking. One common way that we think of the international relationship between states, there's not a hierarchy or an ultimate authority in the international system. When we think of our country in the United States, most of us probably felt pretty safe throughout today. And Part of this is because if somebody is going to harm you or break the rules, you can call 911. There's a state that has legitimate monopoly on violence and you can call for help. But in the international system, If a state breaks the rules, nobody can call a 911 to help restore order. And so there is no ultimate hierarchy here. It doesn't mean there's chaos. There can be very much order, but it's without a hierarchical system. One prominent way to envision this lack of hierarchy in the system is, you know, you don't know if your ally today, your friend today is going to rise up and maybe hurt you tomorrow. We see this before World War I. Otto von Bismarck had put together this elaborate array of of treaties and alliances between Germany and Russia, Austro-Hungary, and France. And then many of these went to war a little bit later after they had been getting along. And so you can't always be certain. And so in this system, if you can't have a hierarchy that holds the rules in place, the only way to be safe is to be incredibly powerful. Because if you are incredibly powerful, nobody's going to mess with you. And if you do, you can quash them down quite quickly. But the problem with this and this idea is that if you try to become powerful, you are often and easily annihilated. Most countries that try to become in powerful states are destroyed in the process. And so we can think of Germany and Japan in World War II trying to rise up and, and dominate large parts of the world and then the rest of the world rising up and crushing them down, nearly annihilating them. So a path to power is very dangerous and trying to be secure, but staying very weak is also dangerous. What do you do? And so you try to make little gains of power. You have to be very strategic about how you become a powerful state. One of the ways you can do this as a state is to test test the world and see what a little bit what you can get away with and help gain a little bit of power in that process. And if you can also see how much power you have and how much power others have to push against you. And so we began looking at this in particular with the Russian aggression since 2008. We really saw this turn in Russian foreign policy with the Russian-Georgian War fighting in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. We've seen this in Crimea and in a number of other situations, in U.S. elections, you know, how much can Russia get away with in messing with U.S. elections, pushing different types of information, fracturing our political parties and people within it? How much is the U.S. going to push back? How much can they? Crimea I think is a really interesting test to look at in terms of trying to understand what we see in the war today. In 2013, there was an association agreement between the EU and Ukraine that didn't work out. And then we had this Euromaidan protest, the violence that was raging in the burning monuments in 2014 at Euromaidan. And then we had the ousting of the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, and shortly after this, we see these green men pop up across Crimea, the peninsula in the Black Sea off of Ukraine. And there's a referendum, essentially a gunpoint, to join Russia. So with this test of annexing this peninsula, What did Russia gain by doing this? Financially, Ukraine has been pouring money into Crimea and doesn't get anything really out of it. And the same has been true for Russia, pouring money into it and doesn't get a lot out of it. Politically, after he annexed Crimea, Vladimir Putin did get a bump in his poll numbers. So he went up from the high 60s back up into the 80s, where I think he likes to traditionally be. There was a little bit of a a legacy movement, right, that he kind of assured some ideas that he was returning this piece of land to Russia. You know, there was no direct military confrontation. There was no fighting with Ukrainians, with Europe, with the United States or NATO but the gains weren't very substantial to outweigh these costs here. But then if we look to the future, we we definitely imagined that he was going to test Ukraine again. In part, this is because the pandemic closed off countries' borders. We brought supply chains closer to home and then we're also going to have potential change in presidencies. So had very different policies in terms of Joseph Biden's relationship to Russia and his foreign policy, and leading NATO. So there was a new world emerging that was very ripe to test, to see how would the US, NATO, and the rest of the world react. Now, the gains of going into Ukraine again and expanding further west. Yes, he was going to get maybe some political points, moving up in the polls push this idea of being a greater superpower. There were some political gains, but 65% of the population of Ukraine has military experience and was willing to fight if Russia invaded further. There was a very coherent nation that it was in place and ready to defend itself. And they had been building up their weapons and arms since 2014. The costs were quite a lot. And Vladimir Putin has said he agrees with establishing himself as one of the great world powers, keeping his popularity up. But why did he so badly misjudge the costs? Why did the Russian state misjudge the costs of the war? Maybe there's something to Crimea in the response to the international system. So maybe if there had been a greater pushback by the U.S. and NATO militarily or greater political repercussions for taking Crimea, Maybe they wouldn't have done it. But I think a more full explanation comes when we start to look within inside the politics of Russia. This brings us to our first myth, how Russia misunderstood its own power. There is this grand myth of Russian state power. It's not necessarily a new thing. There was this great idea of Soviet state power that has existed and they are incredibly powerful. They're all powerful states but not because they are strong but because they have withered away and eliminated any other sources of power in their society, or almost all other sources of power. So they are the only power, and that is why they are all-powerful. Not because they are strong, but because they've tapped away these different institutions. You know, Russia, after the 1990s, there were a lot of democracy, and there were people very motivated and participating in this. But shortly after, there was this constitutional crisis, and Boris Yeltsin turns the tanks on the parliament because there's a substantial disagreement about his ability and authority in the country. And I think right then, we start to move down a very different path for Russia and its post-communist democracy. This is reflected also in the waging of the war in Chechnya that happens twice. When Vladimir Putin comes to power, it was on this idea of having economic growth and development of the country. But again, it's still with the idea that you stay out of politics. I am still the one who's going to run the show. Now, most recently, since about 2018, when Vladimir Putin's ratings started to fall again, there was financial challenges and things have slowly and slowly gone back to a much more even a totalitarian aspect. He's increasingly trying to control all parts of society. And I think for quite some time, it's been quite authoritarian and even moving towards total control of society. What we've seen is withering away of, you know, different types of sources of information, ways to communicate with your population, eliminating the free press eliminating academic freedom, so there's been laws of the falsification of history. So if the Kremlin doesn't agree with the history that you're writing about, you can be quickly shut down as an academic. If you protest, it's very difficult to get a permit, but even when you do, you can be quickly pushed away. If you're an NGO, you can be quickly labeled a foreign agent and also shut down. We also have this in terms of elections. And we've seen challenges to really free voting, right? Fabrication of elections there, and that there's people just you know, line up with already filled out ballots, stuffing them in boxes. Elections are there used for a very different reason. Vladimir Putin often uses this as a way to sort of gauge governors in these different regions. How responsive are they? If I say you need to get 60% of the vote in Tatarstan, can you do it? And they try to do this, right? See what their authority in the country is. But elections are a very important source of information gathering for a state, a way for the state to understand what they want to do. Do we want a policy in, or do we prefer a different type of policy? And so state strength, the capacity, and the autonomy for the state to do what it wants, Russia really doesn't have that capability. And so as they have dismantled the parts of the state of Russia, weakened it greatly, and taking away different and diverse voices, different types of organization. They have, with their singular voice, created an image of Vladimir Putin and the state as powerful. And we see this in these really vivid photos of Putin riding bare-chested on a horse or scoring six goals in a hockey game against professionals, judo-chopping folks. They've carefully crafted this image. And as they've displayed this singular voice and this image of power, they've greatly overestimated their ability to overwhelm Ukrainian forces and not incur great costs. In other words, they've created this cult of personality of Putin, this image of a powerful state at the expense of actual real state power and have sort of blindly gone into this war.
1: You are listening to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts and key people on the ground, telling the story of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, filling in temporarily for your host, Ann Levine. Today, we hear a presentation by Scott Feinstein, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. He explores issues of power and decision-making processes by nation states in light of the misjudgments made by Russia when they invaded Ukraine. The presentation was made at the Iowa State University Lecture Series. The presentation has been shortened and edited for
0: broadcast. Let's return to this presentation. The second myth The myth of Slavic Brotherhood demonstrates again how the perceived costs of war have been lowered dramatically by a particular narrative that has continued throughout the Soviet experience. But instead of it being about the overestimation of Russian power, this is about the underestimation of Ukrainian power. This myth of Slavic Brotherhood is the idea that Ukraine and Russia are one people. That Ukrainians don't really exist. And so if Ukrainian identity doesn't exist, if the Ukrainian state doesn't exist, it's very easy to go in and take this place. It's just full of Russians. And those who are Ukrainian, they're not probably even sane or human, right? And so it would be very easy for them to go in and do this. So we have Vladimir Putin very ominously talking just a few days before the war, describing how the creation of Ukraine began with Lenin but it goes back much further. This has been something very important to part of Soviet education and Russian education, taught actually in classes about the Slavic Brotherhood, in news media, other sources of propaganda, and pageantry and celebrations as well, sort of the denial of Ukrainians. One of these prominent moments or descriptions of this falsification of history has been poignantly described to the Parislav agreement, which happened in 1654. And Russian education after the collapse of the Soviet Union continued this idea that, you know, this was the coming together of Ukrainians and Russians as a single people. So this was an agreement that everybody decided, yes, we're actually Russians. But this was, in fact, a military agreement, much like we might see between NATO countries. There was the Polish kings and Russian tsars, Ottoman sultans, and Ruthenians and Cossacks, which were the Ukrainians. And they were all battling for this territory. And at this point in 1654, this was the alliance that formed between the Russian tsar. And the Ukrainians. But it's taught very, very differently. We have the postage stamp celebrating the 325th year of the Parislav agreement in the Soviet Union. There's great celebrations 2004, the 350th year, and it's prominently spoken about. Continual civic education that they are one people. Another falsification of this history is what is taught as what Eurasia is. That Not a lot of people really existed, and Russians came in, created, developed the country. There's no mention of Bashkir or Orkuts or Tatars as much in the national history, but instead it's about the Russians coming in and the denial that these other groups really existed, including Ukrainians. And so the Moscow Principality forms under Russian Empire and expands out and tames the frontier and brings Siberia into it with a Parislav agreement, brings the Ukrainians back to being recognized as the Slavic brothers of the Russians. But what we don't see are these other images of the Ukrainian People's Republic during the Russian Civil War from 1917 to 1921, where it was an independent Ukrainian state that had existed for over 100 years, including after the Paraslav agreement. We see this continual denial even today, right? 30 years of independence. There are a sovereign state of Ukraine and a people that actually exists, but it's essentially denied. We often think of the Soviet Union as this Slavic Brotherhood that developed the Slavic Union between Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Russians, uh, this Bolshevik Revolution. But in fact, there was a Ukrainian army. And when Lenin and the Bolshevik army came to Kiev, they fought and they lost. And then they took a second attempt, and they fought and lost trying to capture Kiev. And it was only on the third attempt when they negotiated that the Ukrainians decided that they were going to join the Bolshevik Revolution. It's also difficult to say that there is the Slavic Brotherhood when we think about tragedies that have happened. In 1932 to 33, Holodomor was a forced famine. The 90th anniversary was just this Monday. Recently a number of countries have recognized this as a forced famine and a, a genocide of the Ukrainians committed by the Soviet state, which was largely dominated by a Russian nomenclature. So it's hard to argue for this Slavic Brotherhood. And today, with the Ukrainian war, it's something similar. How much brotherly love is really going on here? We might wonder, right? So why did Russia go to war in Ukraine? Part of this is that they want to be powerful so that they can be safe. But at the same time, they are a weak state and were terribly misguided and unable to adequately gauge the costs of the war. And so I'm just gonna briefly talk about how the war in Ukraine is shaping international relations today. One is the likelihood of further nuclear proliferation. So what we've seen is that if you have nuclear weapons, you can go into another country and NATO, others are gonna be afraid of a larger scale war and are not going to come directly against you. And so the only way to be safe from a nuclear power is to have nuclear weapons of your own. And if you have nuclear weapons of your own, well, then you can go and take somebody else's land. So there's more and more incentives to increasing the amount of nuclear weapons. We see Russia balking on the New START Treaty. We also have greater breakdown of global communication. Things seem more dangerous. This becomes more difficult to solve issues like climate change that take a whole global society, not just one country. If we zoom into the global south where economies are less developed, we have seen over the past couple of years the middle class in many of these countries fall back into poverty. And with the war, energy costs have gone up, food costs have gone up. Russia and Ukraine combined to make about 75% of the world's grain. With more poverty, more energy insecurity, food insecurity, these communities are more likely to have civil war and instability. And they're also less likely to attract market interests, investments from places like in the West that are largely driven by market economies. China has made quite a bit of inroads with Belt and Road Project and is not as much uh, driven by these market incentives and is going to likely continue to align much of the global self in its direction. So I think there's a few takeaways from this that I'll be very brief. One is that if you want to sort of test the world power, if you want to get stronger in the international system, it's important to be powerful at home. Develop your own strength as a state, the diversity of opinions and organizations within it. And at the same time, you know, more narrowly, we can see that myths about Russian power, myths about the Slavic Brotherhood can be quite dangerous. If you only allow one narrative to exist, well, then you start to really misconceive your past and fuel misperceptions about the future, what your state's going to do, its type of your foreign policy. And oddly, finally, is that if you are a weak state, like Russia, you can make quite a mistake, and even if you are weak, and make a mistake about the costs of war, but still have the power to dynamically alter the world today. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Щогось наша славна Україна зажурилася, А ми ту в щервону калину підіймемо, а ми нашу славну Україну гей, гей, розвеселимо, А ми тут у червону калину. Славну Україну, гей гей, розвеселимо. Нехилися червона калино маєш білий цвіт. Не журися славна Україно маєш вільний рід. А ми тут. Червону калину підіймемо, а ми нашу славу Україну, гей,
0: розвеселимо, а ми тут червону калину підіймемо, а ми нашу славу Україну, гей розвеселимо Гей у вої я проїв пшениці і He's not.
1: The Red Viburnum in the Meadow, a version of the Ukrainian folk song performed by the military band of the Armed Forces of Ukraine and three choirs in the city of Vinistia. Thanks to the Ukrainian Armed Forces for their permission. You have been listening to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts and key people on the ground telling the story of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, filling in temporarily for your host, Anne Levine. During the past hour, we heard a shortened and edited version of Russia, Ukraine, and United States, Monsters and Myths, a presentation made November 30th by Scott Feinstein, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Feinstein researches violence and ethnic groups and their cultural bonds. He spent over three years taking interviews and digging through archives in Russia, Moldova, and Ukraine, where he was a Fulbright Scholar. He has also applied his work on ethnic groups to examine identity politics here in the United States, including projects focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is published in leading political science and interdisciplinary journals, supported by several prestigious funding agencies. Recently, with a team of Iowa State University scholars, he was awarded a Civic Innovation Award from the National Science Foundation to study and assist Ukrainians displaced by war. Thank you to Scott Feinstein and Iowa State University Lecture Series for their permissions and assistance. If you'd like to send a message to Ukrainians, please call 510 883 3115. Again, that's 510 883 3115, and your message will be translated and rebroadcast to 26 cities across Ukraine. Until next time on Ukraine 242. I thank you for listening.